What's up, everybody? I hope that you're all having a great day from wherever it is that you're listening to my voice. This conversation was recorded in a barn in Pichilemu, Chile. So while you're listening, you can picture my guest and I freezing our asses off on a windy spring day because it's springtime in Chile right now. I was down there writing a story about a recent land conservation success that happened at Punta de Lobos. I will let you know more about that when the article is out. My guest, Ben Kneppers, is the co-founder of Boreo Incorporated. They are an emerging company that operates between Chile and California, and they are focused on creating innovative solutions to ocean plastic pollution. They take fishing nets which are a big part of all of the ocean plastic pollution. And they recycle them and create, the, uh, create new products. They create skateboards and sunglasses, and there's a new Jenga game that's being made with ocean uh, uh, nets, fish, these nets. Because the, the thing that happens with them is they're only used a couple times. The nets are only used a few times, and then they get worn out, and many times the fishermen just cut them loose. My buddy uh, Chris Ryan was recently on Joe Rogan's podcast, and they went on this rant about the fishing net issue. And Rogan, who was probably baked out of his mind, had this great analogy where he said, man, it's like these ghost nets floating through the ocean. And I loved that, because when you think about these ghost nets that are suffocating our ocean it puts it in perspective I loved having this guy on the podcast because not only is he talking about an environmental issue that needs to be addressed he has created a for-profit business that is solving it so without further preamble please welcome my guest Ben Kneppers. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So you uh, were living in Chile for a number of years. Mm. You recently lived, moved to Brazil. In between, yeah. And so you've been coming back and forth. Yep, yep. Uh, and what prompted the move down here and then uh, to Brazil? Uh, well, I mean, it, it was really... I, I was living in Australia for almost four years before, and uh, I had an old friend that that was just interning at the company. And, uh, at Boreo? No, no, no. Right. I, when I was an environment, sorry, I was a sustainability consultant before Boreo. Okay. And I was working, my first big gig was in Australia. Okay. Maybe just give me like a quick little rundown. Sure, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Rundown. So from, from me... Who are from, you? <laughs> 
<laughs> You've lived so, so many places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm originally from Massachusetts. I'm Ben Kneppers, one of the co-founders of Boreo. Um, we're a company focused on creating innovative solutions to this growing problem of ocean plastic pollution. And the way that we've really got things going for us is we, we found out how big of a problem fishing nets was. And, and we, we made a system to partner with fishermen to collect the nets at their end of life, which is actually really good quality, highly recyclable material uh, and make positive products out of that material. And through that, it's fully scalable. And the fact that we're upcycling the material, it, it, we can invest a lot more effort in those areas that really need the help. And and uh, slowly but surely, we're just finding more applications for the material. Start with the skateboard, and now it's surf fins and, and Jenga and all that stuff. So I used the surf fins today. You did? Oh, nice. I didn't know that. They fucking worked. Sweet. They worked, man. Sweet. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm red fishnet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fins right now. Yeah. Um, upcycling is something that's fascinating to me because when we talk about recycling, most products, what we're really saying is downcycling because mm. yeah. there aren't many products that you can make into the same product. Usually it's a plastic bottle into, uh, surfboard shorts or yeah. into some, or I, I mean, explain this to me. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, it was something we really ran into is, was, um, that that the whole idea of the business started with just if we could create an infrastructure to prevent the plastic the most vulnerable plastic before it enters the ocean and then recycle it upcycle it into a new product that the 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 opportunity of upcycling allows us to add an, an added value for the material so that could allow us to commit added money to go back into the community and then go to more communities and then start snowballing this thing. So we were really stuck on, um, what was that product going to be? And, uh, for recycled plastic, it, it, a lot, it surprisingly hasn't been a very success, uh, sexy business. It's usually in pretty boring stuff, you know, like they use recycled plastic to make waste bins or, um, you know, just car parts that you don't even know that the plastic's in it and stuff like that. And we just wanted to flip it on its head and like show this is a premium material because of the story, because of all this connection it has to what we're doing. Um, so, so the thing we kept exploring was, you know, what can we make that's totally doable, but it's also something that doesn't require that much plastic and we can, it, but still when it's a final product, it's, it's worth a lot. And that's when the, the, we landed on the plastic cruiser skateboard. It was, you know, that's one kilo of plastic per deck that when we get all the components and we get it ready to go, it's worth over a hundred dollars. So that, that's, that's upcycling for you. You know, this, this discarded fishing net, yes, it's more expensive to have to pay local labor and, and get the logistics on the ground to get these nets. But then suddenly, boom, when you can transform into something worth over a hundred dollars and, and scale, and it's something scalable that can give back to these communities. And that then we knew we started to think we, this is something. You know? So why did you start in Chile with fishermen right down here? Yeah. So I'm trying my best to, I'm, I'm notorious for getting lost in my tangled history, but oh, don't even try, <laughs> don't even try and make this a linear thing, man. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this podcast is so tangential. No, I, I, <clears throat> besides the fact that my wife is from Brazil and we met in Australia and her visa ran out, so she had to go back to South America. Um, I had a job opportunity in Chile 
Um, I basically, I just did a, a national study in Australia and my friend that I worked with in Australia was Chilean and he wanted me to come and bring that and create that study here. Um, so that was, that was the, the main reason I came here. And, and, um, and so I was finally getting to this level that I always wanted to get to as a sustainability consultant. I was doing stuff with the sustainability consortium. We're the Latin American hub for the sustainability consortium. We were doing a UN project, UNEP projects that was like advising the strategy of how to make an eco label for the entire Southern Cone region and doing some really cool stuff that I was like, yes, this is the level I want to get to. But I wasn't seeing any real change. Like it was just a meeting to have a meeting to have a meeting. And I was getting really frustrated. And so I relayed that frustration to my old roommate in Australia, who also happens to be from the Northeast. I'm, I'm originally from Massachusetts. David's from Block Island. And um, he was getting burnt out as a financial consultant. And we we're just like, man, we should do something more meaningful, you know? And uh, Chile had this program called Startup Chile. It still exists today. If you want to start a business, this is like the best deal you can probably get in the world where you present, it was started by a, a Chilean that just finished grad school at, at Stanford, I think MBA program. And um, he just started seeing like how all these amazing, talented people that were from all over the world doing the MBA with him were so desperately trying to stay in America. And to do it, you have to get the visa sponsored through a company and da 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 da. So a lot of them just had to, to cut ties and move back to their home countries. And he's like, let, we need to get these people in Chile. So this program is is basically you can be from anywhere in the world. You present your business plan, and uh, you know you you've got the standard kind of materials you got to present. But with that, um, if you get accepted, they give you six month visa, um, equity free, like forty grand, um, and just everything you need to start a business. So that's how Boreo started. So that's how Boreo started. So we said, hey, next applications in six months. Let's just let's just find something, and okay. and we just kind of put that as a test to us. Um, so so we just always came back to our obsession with ocean plastic. You know, we were always traveling all around the world to surf and just be be by the ocean, and we just couldn't believe how much we were seeing it everywhere, everywhere. You know, we lived in the northern beaches of of Sydney where we know you have to sit on a plane for like 24 hours and pay an absorbent amount of money to get there yet. And, and you're there to see this place, this beautiful, the Northern beaches, you know, it's like 27 beaches one after another. And yet there's people, tourists that are there to be there paying all this money to be there. And then they just leave their trash on the beach. And it just didn't make any sense to us. And we're like, how can people be this way? And then when we looked in the problem more and more and more, it's just like, it's it's incredible how how bad it's getting. You know, they're saying by 2050 there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish, and it's just when you start to see like growing up places that you used to be able to jump in the water and have a swim, and now it's like just completely contaminated. Like forget about it. It's scary to think that someday like that could just be the whole ocean. You know. And, and so we just dove into that and, and we were all engineer background. So we took a very academic approach and we researched the heck out of it. We did informational interviews with anybody in that space. And as, as much as the media likes to cast such a negative light on it, we wanted to make it something positive in that this is solvable. We can, we can do something about this. 
And so the idea was, what if we, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about going out and getting the trash in the ocean, but actually the fact that 80% of it's coming from land um, and, and the studies have been done to show the most effective ways stopping it at its source. Um, so that's when we started to focus on coastal communities, empowering coastal communities in a way where they could get that plastic before it ends up in the ocean, educate the people around them to, to, do, to, to no longer look at this as just a waste to discard and see the value in it. Then we can start to make that shift. And, um, and, then, and then around that, we, you know, should we do the non-profit route? And I was seeing businesses just you know, using capitalism as this beast. And we're like, what if we, no, let's try to be a B Corp and use this so we can be a beast for good. You What's know? a B Corp? So B Corp benefit corporation. So it's, it's really the, the global benchmark to recognize you, it's a full certification process to recognize that you are a, a responsible business. Um, and it's, it's quite extensive and, um, but it was something from day one we knew we wanted to be part of, I mean, Patagonia, really set the tone by stepping up really early on in it. And now it's amazing to see how many people are taking it on. Uh, I mean, not just startups like us, but like big, big companies. So you, after all this research, decided to go for fishing nets. So, yeah. So, so that's a good point. Yeah. So I mean, it's such, it's such a big issue. You need some entry point. Well, that's where my third co-founder comes into the picture. Kevin. So Kevin was, uh, went to engineering school with Dave at Lehigh in Pennsylvania. And Kevin grew up in Montauk. Like dad was like founder of the local surf rider chapter, like every day surfing, like addict. And, um, and he took a, a round the world surf trip with his, his brother and spent a couple months in the same town we were in, in, in the Northern, in Manly in Sydney. And so we met just casually there. We would surf together and stuff. And, um, and then once we started going with this idea, we'll, we'll make, we'll collect the plastic, we'll recycle it, we'll make a new product out of it. And when we land on the skateboard, we're like, we're like, okay, we need somebody that can develop this. Kevin was a design engineer at Boeing, like crazy, like making submarines and nutty stuff, you know? So we're like, we got to bring Kevin in. And then Kevin is just like, so to the point, like engineer. And, and he was the one to really like balance it all out and bring us back to reality and be like, you can't just take all the plastic on the beach and expect to melt it down and make a skateboard that's going to perform and have, you know, one after another consistent, high quality performance, da, 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 da. And we're like, shit. Yeah, he's right. Damn it. <laughs> damn it. So we took a step back and we said, all right, if this is all about preventing plastic from getting in the ocean, what actually makes up the plastic in the ocean? And that's where we were struck by the research showing that 10% of the plastic pollution in the ocean is discarded fishing nets. And not only that, um, it's the most harmful for marine mammals, marine life, because it can just continue to trap things as it, as it goes, uh, being left in the, in the ocean, as you can imagine. And so with that, I just, having my network already as a sustainability consultant, I started asking around. I had a friend that was working with World Wildlife Fund um, and I would just go to the coast on the weekends and just ask the local fishermen and just straight up being like, what are you guys doing with these nets when they get old? And it was incredible to hear, especially in the case of the little artisanal fishing villages, they just said, botarlo, botarlo o quemarlo, which is we just throw it but if it's too much to move, we'll just burn it on the beach. 
So I was like, Oh my God, this is okay. Yeah. There's a need. And, and the, and the perfect combination of it that was just so amazing is that it's a really good plastic and it's a really high performance plastic. It's nylon six and it's the same stuff that the plastic cruisers that were already out there, a lot of them were already being made from that. And we're like, Oh my God, it's just totally coming together. And the nice thing is it's, it's super consistent. So when we partner with a fishing syndicate, one of the first things we do is we ask them for the purchase records of the net so we can check it upstream to make sure, yep, it's nylon six sourced from here. And again and again and again, we can be fully confident that we're getting a really consistent material because that's key to make a high quality product like a skateboard. So why, uh, where does that nylon come from? Who are the manufacturing companies? Uh, the one that we've seen is is uh, a Japanese company, Tore, which, funny enough, we're talking to them about doing recycling work with them. So how crazy is that? If ultimately we could actually be sending them their nylon back to use again. Sick of <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this Japanese company makes the nylon. They sell it to the Chilean fishermen. They Yeah. They, they get it to line, to, to thread. Uh, if it's a multi-filament net, like a purseine net, then it's it's thread that gets woven, or it's monofilament. It's like the fishing, like you see on a fishing rod, like a line, and that gets sewn together. Um, but yeah, then they supply that, and then they they have the actual net manufacturer weave it into the net, and then that's that's what the local fishermen buy and use. And why do the local fishermen need to discard the nets? Because they break. Because um, the worst thing that could happen, well, not the worst, but a really shitty thing that can happen is you go out to sea, you're paying the gas to get out to sea, you got at least 10 guys on deck to, to manage the net and on a large-scale artisanal boat. Uh, you get your catch, you know, things are cooking, you're, you're, you're doing a really good haul, and the net breaks. And if that net breaks, you're losing the whole catch. You're so that means all the money you've been investing in to get the guys out here, the gas, everything, it's out the window. So it's really essential for them that uh, that these these are going to perform. How, how many and how many times uh, on average can they use the nets before they're too old? Uh, it really depends on the type of boat and the type of practice, but I mean, a large scale artisanal is like two to three years, but they're constantly repairing them. So even those scraps is a, it turns over a significant amount for us. In the case of the small, small artisanal, just, you know, the, the outboard motor, like little, little boats, um, that do the gill net with the monofilament, those can break every other week. And and the one number the, their number one thing that they that's breaking them is they they tell me they can't stand these things is the sea lions, because once they start catching the fish and the fish are there, sea lions just break right through them to get the fish from that. Oh, I'm sure those things yeah. just torpedo the nets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's a huge challenge for them, and um, they're just fighting them off, and and but yeah, the net comes back broken, and and um, and and since it's such a low cost material to them. They just get another one. Right. And I would imagine that they don't want to risk a net that is a little bit used. It's, almost, it's like a climber using an old climbing rope. It's yeah. just not worth yeah. the risk. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, uh, previously, they would either throw it back out into the ocean 
or they would burn it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, not every case, you know, there's still some, inf- there was some, inf- like a bin, like a waste bin, if you got lucky, but that takes up so much volume, you're not going to get all of it in there. Um, and then obviously the larger fishermen that have the workshops, have the warehouses, stuff like that, it's a little less likely, but, but, um, but still every time, like we would have uh, almost any, every time a case of them admitting to us that, yeah, we've definitely had cases where we'd be chucking this stuff back in the water. And how did you set up the, uh, program for them to bring the fishing nets in and upcycle them? So, um, basically we are a waste management service for them that has some really nice cherries on top because, uh, in the case of artisanal, we happily pay them per kilo for those nets that they return to us. You know, they have, we have to train them to like make sure they're clean and sorted and packed. Um, but we happily, happily pay them. So it creates that incentive now to, to maintain it. And it's a behavior change where they're now looking at this as a resource instead of a waste. And so that, that's been really effective. I mean, the small communities is always a work in progress for us and how we can do it better and better. Um, and then, and then the other end of the spectrum was the large commercial, I mean, the, you know, the battleship, uh, you know, one net is 30 tons on these guys' boats with the big commercial fishing company. Wait, one net is 30 tons? One net is 30 tons for those guys. Yeah. Wait, w- without fish? or Without with- fish. Without fish. One net it's weighs like 30, a mountain. 30 tons. Yeah, it's like probably the size of this room. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy. So as you can imagine, their their output of fishnet waste is huge, but did we, we didn't really feel comfortable buying nets from a big crazy industry that was you know doing a lot of not so great things in some some respect you know so we were we we're in a little bit of a dilemma like they've you got mean by overfishing yeah okay so yeah. You, so you felt more comfortable working with smaller uh fishing boats yeah. because it wasn't directly such um, an impact on the environment in the first place. Right. And, and I mean, that's that for them, it's, it's really just making a living. It's, it's subsistence and it's a way that they're just going to feed their family and, and sell the rest to cover their bills. And, and that's it. But a, a big commercial fishing company, they're investors. They're, they're buying a boat because they know that they can double their profits every year after year if they keep getting their quotas and their, their volumes going bigger and bigger. And it's, it's a business for them, which, uh, you know, I, I understand, I respect like their businessmen and it's, it's profitable to do that. But for me, I didn't really feel comfortable with our whole mission to necessarily be in some way like putting money towards that. So this year we had a really, really great accomplishment, um, where to be honest, they didn't really need them. They didn't care about the money. So we made an agreement, a national agreement with the, the industry association of Chile, um, for commercial fisheries to that. All of them are to donate the nets to us, but to give that incentive still going, we commit to the money that we already have budgeted to buy the nets to donate to local NGOs. And then that money is going into the, the creating the added effort we need into those ar- small artisanal fishing, fishing communities ar- surrounding where these commercial guys operate. So it's helping better the relationship with them. And it's, uh, it's creating another level of value that I don't think they even knew existed, which is, which is an environmental value. Right. You have no problem taking their nets. You would just rather pay the little guys. Yeah. Which yeah. makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Dude. 
<laughs> it's a mouthful, man. Yeah, it's a mouthful. But yeah. um, like what a uh, you you pierced the veil, man. Like you, we're you trying. Found a way to to get into there, get into this massive issue. Yeah, and it's scalable. That's what's really cool is that you started making skateboards. Yep. Then you started making uh, fins, surfboard fins. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say we did we did a collection of sunglasses. That was a nice little bump for us. Um, then we did we did a frisbee with Jack Johnson for his tour. Um, that was super fun. And then um, and gosh, we just launched the Jenga project. We did Jenga Ocean, so it's the first Jenga game set, hundred percent recycled fishing nets with little sea animals on the blocks and everything. Um, and I mean, those have all been great for us, like super cool and it's fun to brand, uh, co-brand with some fun products, but we need to move mountains, you know, and that's what we're working on now is, you know, we've really, I think figured it out pretty well, how we can, we can start getting to not the tens of tons, but hundreds, if not thousands of tons of fishing nets a year turning over. And with a lot of, with probably 50% of that coming from commercial fishing companies, that means a lot of money we can get for community projects as well with that, that commitment. So that's exciting. That's the stuff I'm really excited about ramping up. So are you looking to get into potentially less sexy projects that have more volume attached to them? Correct. Because it seems like that's what it's going to take. Like, yeah. there's only so many plastic skateboards and Jenga sets. <laughs> yeah. That you yeah. Can, I mean, they're still they're still fairly sexy. Like, we have a really great partnership now with um, with an ergonomic office furniture company, and called Human Scale. And we're talking about we're not even talking about. We've already made uh, a run of them, and and its its response has been amazing for their market of uh, changing over all the nylon in the the structural components of the their their line of chairs to to use our just swap out and use our nylon from the fishing nets and that's that's you know not not as fun as Django ocean but that's a lot of material yeah that's a lot of material. Um, one thing we skipped over that i want to dig into a little bit more is the actual process of upcycling a net into one of these uh products that you make what does that look like? Like, take me into that room. So it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, that's kind of, I think, has been beneficial for us, how straightforward it is. We receive the net. We make sure it's clean. Um, we just give it a quick power washing, dry it in the sun, uh, and then we send it to our recycler in Santiago um, that basically just shreds the net back to like a fluff, like almost like the inside of a pillow. And then, um, and then we pelletize it, which basically means we, um, it melts down and then, uh, it's almost like a pasta maker, like comes out in the little pasta string, but instead of a long string, there's just a little thing that just cuts it back into little pellets, little, little nurdles, they call them. And with that is your, that's your raw material. Like that's the form that, that, uh, plastic is in when, when you, you use it for injection molding purposes. So we, we basically just take those pellets, feed it into the injection molder, which is um, basically, we, we tell kids it's like a waffle iron. You know, it's, it's basically a big steel mold of the, the product and with lots of pressure and, um, and, and heat, uh, you inject, you melt those uh, pellets down and, and push it into the, the shape of that product and, Outcome, outcomes the skateboard deck. So is it a heating process? 
for, yeah. like, through that. So it, it heats it up into the spaghetti and then it's cut and then it cools down. Yep, it cools down. You got your pellet, and then the next fa- next phase is the actual injection molding. It's totally separate. And you have one factory in Santiago right now. We contract it. Yeah, it's not our factory. Yeah, right. Yeah, you contract it out. Yeah. Okay. And um, how do bring me into the profit model of this whole thing? Yeah. Like how that works. So you you contract, you pay the factory, mm-hmm. uh, you pay the fishermen for the nets. You yep. get the nets. You then uh, work with... I mean, the, the skateboards were yours. Is that correct? Yep, yep. But now you're working with a skateboard company yeah, to yeah. distribute it? Yeah, we did the first board. We called the Minnow, which is just a fun little, um, just like penny style cruiser. Um, and that was that was really fun for us. But, but we wanted to get something of a higher performance. And um, we were blown away that the founders of Carver, Carver Skateboards... Um, reached out to us and just said, "Hey guys, cheers on what you're doing. Like it's awesome." And uh, and we we're like, "If you guys ever want to collaborate, let us know." And so the cool thing about that partnership is their their whole thing is the the trucks. You know, they really pioneered the whole surf skate uh, design and movement, and 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 it's done amazingly well for them because it's a, it's a skateboard really made for surfers where you can pump it instead of just riding it like a, a typical skateboard where you got to push it. And, um, and so, so the, so the idea was why don't we make the deck and combine it with, with your trucks and, uh, and, and, and they provide the distribution and they provide the distribution and, and we just have our small sales channels that we, we sell direct and through Patagonia stores and, and they, they just run the gambit on the rest. Okay. And that, that, uh, is a similar model with like creating the Jenga sets as well. They provide right. the distribution. You guys get a cut of whatever, uh, is sold using the ocean plastics. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, going back to that first skateboard, we just like, realized we had we were covering way too much ground for three guys like we literally you know got this whole thing figured out of negotiating with fishermen to collect nets and recycle it to to make a skateboard deck to then get the components get it all assembled and then boom you've got your skateboard we're like we made it we made it that doesn't mean shit like then you actually got to sell the thing and that's where most companies start is just they already have someone else making their product and they're 110 percent focused on getting it distributing it marketing it selling it and that part we were like oh shit like now we got to do all that now too like damn it so it was really burning us out and and in the meantime we just were so grateful to have some really amazing companies that we respected a lot like patagonia reaching out to us and and wanting to get more involved and 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 they were the ones to start to say can we use your plastic too like in our stuff and we're like yeah and then we're just like oh my god this is way easier we can just focus on getting the nets and doing the stuff that we really care about and just like letting those guys do their thing and like they know they know how to sell this you know they know how to sell their products that's what they do so that's what we're getting into more and more is like becoming being focusing on the the net collection and scaling that program which we now we call net positiva um, and, uh, and then just let in to supply the material to these guys that know how to make great products. They're also responsibly made and, and we can make them in a circular economy design. And then, uh, and then just, they just take the material from us and we just can keep having, keep going with the, the net collection. What do you mean by circular economy design? 
So that was that was one of the big ones that we we re- we came across in our research of like you know why are these things happening? Is that um, we're just designing this whole thing through a take weight make waste model, and um, what the circular economy movement's all about is is it's you know whether you like it or not, we're going to have plastic. Plastic is actually a pretty badass material with its resiliency and its applications and everything. And so if we accept that, we just need to make a, a model that's going to be able to manage it properly. So instead of just throwing it at the end of life or having a product that's okay, yeah, it's plastic, but it's three different kinds of plastic. You got to peel this off and move that to like do it, uh, to recycle it properly let's start from the beginning and design a model where like the product we can make when it's, when it meets its end of life, you're, you, it, it's got another life to it again. And it's all streamlined to, to just continue being this closed loop. And, and that's really something that we've taken on with like all of our products we make, we give, we reward our customers with discount codes and stuff. If it ever meets its end of life, we'll take it back so we can recycle it again. Like skateboards, skateboards, sunglasses. I mean, we haven't had it really happen much because and we haven't marketed much because we want to emphasize that our products do last. Right. Yeah. But, you hope they're not kind of taking yeah, it back yeah, after yeah, six months. Yeah. You're still a start. Yeah, oh, when it snaps, just send it over. No. <laughs> but if it does, like if the skateboard if breaks does, or gets yeah. super beat, you could bring it back yeah. and it, that could be ground up and made into a new skateboard. Right. Right. You just chip it and we'd put it as part of the batch of the next the next skateboard production. And, and that's a big thing that like, it's one of our, like, uh, what is it? Disclaimers or whatnot to that. When we partner with the company that's going to use our plastic, we want to make sure that that, that has an end of life solution when, when our material in their product can be collected back again so we can recycle. Cause the last thing we want to do would be just horribly ironic is, you know, we do all go through all this trouble. They use it for a couple of years and then boom, somebody back <laughs> in the landfill, back in the landfill again. Yeah. Are you familiar with Story of Stuff? Yeah, Annie yeah. Annie Leonard and Story of Stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was that was really powerful. That first video she did. That That's, was a big eye opener. Yeah. It struck a nerve. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Annie Leonard is now the executive director of Greenpeace. She started an organization. Yeah. She started an organization called Story of Stuff, which was a video series, uh, animated video series about the life cycle of stuff, and she breaks it down into how we have this materials economy in crisis and usually the earth foots the bill at the end of it and we just don't see it as surfers. We see it more than other people, right? We're the, because a lot of the end of the materials end up in the ocean. Um, but it's a, it's a paradigm shift and, uh, it's something that our generation is kind of like really, uh, rapidly needing to wake up to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find that like I mean, you're kind of like this beacon, so I'm sure that you see it all the time where people are like, oh my God, that, that switch happened, and now I see it everywhere. Yeah. It's a little bit like waking up from the matrix when you look at plastic pollution. Because yeah. if you don't think about it, you assume that when that plastic goes into the recycling bin, that like, you know, it's going to be met by a bunch of other little friends who are plastic bottles. And they're like, little bottle, you had such a great life. <laughs> what would you like to do next? <laughs> right. But r- most times it's incinerated. Yeah. Um, and I, I th- when you start to see these stories, when you hear a story like Boreo, all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's it's cool to see so many people waking up to it. 
Yeah, it, it's a movement, man. I mean, it's it's really it's so cool to see how much is happening. Like, uh, you know, I I track like marine debris uh, on my Google alerts, and I just to keep up with all this the new technology every day. Some new thing, somebody figured out how to do this and that, and it's it's a movement. That's how how it's always it's if we're going to really do this it's got to be a movement like this and it's happening right now so it's it's just so cool to be a part of it you know did you see the uh vice hbo doc that was just done on ocean plastics yeah i didn't see the full thing i there was a there was a, there was a of, beat of us in there yeah, yeah there's yeah. a clip of a berea skateboard yeah. in there yep that was very cool what's your opinion on the uh ocean plastic uh uh, consumer that that kid is working to create the you mean the the specific um, the ocean cleanup yes project? the ocean cleanup project I'm, I'm spacing on his name uh boy and slot boy and slot yeah yeah what do you think about that project i mean i going back to how we started this thing it it was again we just kept finding the the feasibility getting real with it was all about the coastal the coastline and stopping it at the source um, a really great example, the analogy that, that I love is the one that Marcus Erickson from Five Gyres uses is, is um, you know, there was all this craze about this island of plastic. It's not. It's a, it, the analogy he uses is it's, a, it's like smog. You know, it's particles that are just floating and accumulating and, and it happens to be accumulating in gyres, as you can imagine, because that's where all these oceans are meet, all these currents are meeting. And so when you get there, it's not, it's not an island. It's like a soup of plastic. And so what he compares it to with the smog analogy is the problem of, of smog pollution in, in big cities. And at first they were talking about, oh, let's just, you know, build these, you know, wind tunnels or whatever to suck the smog out of the sky. And then eventually they said like, no, it's, that's not the problem. The problem is the source of it. So if we can control the rate of this stuff entering the sky, I mean, if it's a tolerable amount, nature will, will clean itself. It's just when it's too much, it's, it's too crazy. So again, it was about turning the hose off, stopping it at the source. And that's the same approach that we stuck to. So look, I think it's anything that's being done, I think is great. The only scary thing I worry about is people can look at it and feel like, oh, job done. Like I can throw my bottle out there because I know this Dutch kid's going to pick it up for me with his right. crazy contraption. <laughs> right. So I mean, that that's the only part is like, no, people need to be held accountable. Like you need to look at this and say, what can I do? Instead of like, oh, cool, there's a machine that's going to fix it for me. It's, yeah. It's not that easy. I uh, didn't like the that Vice doc for that exact reason. Yeah. There was, it was a half hour doc. They went deep into the issue and at no point did the host turn and say, and think about the next bottle that you year, use yeah. or the next bag that you use. So the responsibility was never put on the consumer. Hmm. Yeah, that, that that's that's the thing. It, it, at the end of the day, it needs to go back to them and they need to be like... I used to get annoyed when, when I would give presentations and then people would say, well, what about the rest of the plastic? You're just getting fishing nets. And I'd be like, God damn it. They're just trying to like one-up me like this little smart ass. But later on, I reflect and I'm like wow, I got that kid thinking about it now, you yeah, know, and you now he's that. thinking about it. And I'm like, and I'm like, 
And so my response to that now is like, that's the point is like, I'm just, I'm never said I was going to clean the ocean. I'm just doing my part. I need you. You need to figure out the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't do it all. So <laughs> yeah. that, that's what I always put back onto them and it's fun. It, and, and then, uh, you know, the amount of emails we get and stuff. And then always the kids are always like, could, we should make this. We can make, they're just running around their classroom, grabbing chairs and dad, we should make this from it. We should make it's, it's well, that's really what cool I'm talking, to that, see those ideas. That's starting. what I'm saying, man. It's like, it's not that skateboards are going to solve the problem right. but that's this point of entry yep. so that you can get it into schools you can get all the media stories and that has such a uh, an exponential effect yeah it was a proof of concept you know it's just to show what could be done you know we started with the skateboards and we did sunglasses like one product needs to be super durable and and perform with a lot of you know difficult scenarios of, of being stomped on and, and rode with, with, uh, you know, full adult riders going on these little cruisers. And then you had something that had to be used in a fairly precise way, which was making the sunglass frames. I mean, those are a hundred percent just raw recycled fishing net in those, in those frames. So for us, it was kind of like our way of showing like, no, this material can work in a whole variety of ways. What do you think you're best at? hustling hustling yeah 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 i think um you know my the thing that that stuck with me my my dad came from holland you know like just classic american dream kind of story like was a poor poor dutch kid living on a farm in holland and and um came to america and and made made his own business and and did very well for himself um, and, um, it, it eventually did go under and, and that was also a really good lesson to see how, when his company went under, like, how do you maintain? Um, but the point being, the point I wanted to get to was that he told me that he said, he just showed me his desk. He, he, he imports flower bulbs. He absolutely loves from Holland. And, and he said, there's not a day I don't look forward to going to my job. I love what I do. And he said, the best job you're going to do is the one you love to do the most. And I was like, wow. Okay. So that really stuck with me. So all through my twenties with all my travels, the whole point of it all was, I just want to find what something I'm going to absolutely love. And then it's not a job anymore. You know, it, it's, it's just what you were going to do with your life anyways. Cause it's, you know, you go on vacation and like, I don't know, you paint on your, on your time off. It's like them just become a painter, you know? Right. So it's, it was trying to find that balance. And that's, that's what I found with Boreo. You know, I got, I was a sustainability consultant because I just got so into this crisis we're in of like, we're going in such an unsustainable direction with the way the world is operating. So I felt I had to do something there. But like I said before, when I started to see the change wasn't really happening with, as a, on a consulting level, at least for me, I, maybe I'm too impatient. Um, that's when I said, damn it, like, let's just do something real right in front of us. And, and that's what Boreo is. So for me, it's all just about connecting the dots and, and, and just hustling every day to make it happen. Right. Yeah. And so like being the guy who's going to make the brand connection and following up on the emails, like you love doing that stuff. Oh yeah. Well, my, the, the stuff I love is, um, so right after, right after Trump got elected, um, we had, we got our first 50 ton order, 50,000 kilos. So that's a hundred thousand pounds, over a hundred thousand pounds of fishing nets. And, uh, I w- it was far bigger order than we ever had of material to move. And I was so, as everybody was, I was feeling terrible with, with the outcome of the election. And I just said, fuck it. 
I'm calling this the Trump dump. And I just like got my hands dirty and just hustled, went into every fishing port with my little card and showed him the products and like just finding wherever I could to get, get the nets to deliver this order. And, and it was, in, it was incredible. Like in no time at all. And, and like, I'd say two weeks, we were able to secure the, the amount of material we needed to, to deliver the 50 tons. And, uh, and so that's the stuff I love just getting the hands dirty and like seeing results right in front of you, just these mountains of nets that we're just going through. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's, we're doing that. Yeah. I find that doing what it is that you love, um, doesn't mean that there aren't shitty days and it doesn't mean that you're still showing up to work and it's a job. And you know, at the end of the day, it's a job so that you need, can make some money too. Um, but it makes the bad days more bearable. Yeah. Right, because there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and you feel like you're being pulled towards something that's bigger than you, and you don't feel like you're just in this meaningless doldrum, you know, fluorescent light cubicle, and there's no real point to why you're doing any of it. I I couldn't even imagine what it must be like to, you know, even as an environmental consultant, at least I could stop and say at the end of the day, this is all for the right the right reasons, and it's it's still meaningful work, but. My God, imagine being in some job that was super soul sucking and super like putting the amount of work that I have to put into my job, but doing it for something at the end of the day that's like creating more plastic bottles or, you know, serving some big, crazy global company that's doing evil. It's just like, oh, how, how, I don't know how people can do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you get trapped, I think is what happens. A lot of people get they get too bit they're busy you know yeah. they start get they get in debt maybe they have a kid and then at that point it's like your your hands are tied and yeah. with a lot of kids who are getting out of college 300 grand in debt mm-hmm. they need to get the first job that shows up for them so in a lot of ways like to the the system works against you if you're not co- constantly questioning and constantly reassessing yeah. and figuring out where you are on um, you know, on a moral level and also where, where the industry is like you, you, this pro- project wouldn't have worked 50 years ago, right? Like oh, you're, yeah. you're keeping your finger on the pulse of what's the problem that needs to be solved, which is very much a Silicon Valley way to look at business. Yeah. Like that's the question that they always ask. What's the problem that needs to be solved right now? Whether it's Facebook or Google or you guys, the problem that you guys are solving is just a big environmental one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're trying, I mean, yeah, you made me think of a, a, a line from a major research study. I think there was a Ted talk on it and they, they, sur- they assessed all these successful startups, you know, the Instagrams and the Facebooks and everybody. And the number one thing that they all had in common was timing. That was the big, that was the one that broke it all through. So as much as you can have a great idea, as much as you can have investors and backers, and if you don't have that timing aligning where like Instagram was starting just when camera phones were like finally getting to get to decent picture and it's just, it it's just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there like, what are the questions that you ask yourself uh and and what are the questions that you think are most important for people to ask themselves like young person um and and specifically i'm going to take this back to like when you started Boreo. you know mm-hmm. like so the first was like what's the problem that we're trying to solve 
But I think that like it's I'm getting fired up right now. I'm inspired <laughs> by what you're telling me. Thank and I you. think that um, there are a lot of people who want to help solve these problems and need a bit of a roadmap to do that. So is there any uh, kind of fodder that you can give, whether it's books that were super influential for you or questions that you ask yourself on a consistent basis that were really helpful for you uh, to kind of find a guiding light in a very some seemingly chaotic world? Yeah, there's there's something that comes to mind. There's, there was a quote that I, I still have. It's actually in, the, in my email signature <laughs> uh, that, that I saw a long time ago and it really stuck with me. It was Howard Thurman. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go and do that because what the world needs is for people to come alive. And so the, the advice I always give when, you know, students and stuff or reach out and hear about us and want to learn more about what they can do and so forth, um, it's just find out the thing that really gets your passion going and then, and then just get stuck into it. And, and um, so it's always about, you know, making sure that passion is, is there and fueling it. So I'm always checking myself in um, about, you know, how is this connecting all back? How is this really part of serving that, that passion that I have? And, and, um, and I, the advice I, I give is, is try to find that for yourself, whatever it may be, you know, the same, my wife, the same thing. She's the same time we started Barreo, she had her marketing degree and everything was going to go back working as in a marketing firm in Sao Paulo or wherever we were going to end up. And she just loved to draw. And she just thought, yeah, but you know, you can't make a living as an artist. And so she, but she just said, you I'm just going to take some classes, you know, and next thing you know, she figured out that, oh, there's this thing called print design, you know, and that you can make a living on. And now she's, she's killing it. Like she's like, she's got studios across the world representing her work and she's just, just getting her a whole name for herself just because she finally went back to the fact that what is something I really love and really passionate about. And for her, it was drawing and, and the rest kind of just comes together. And you're living in Sao Paulo now. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So to be fair, my wife has tolerated a lot. We lived in a fishing village for the last two and a half years in the south of Chile, freezing our asses off. Uh, she's She got a really great uh, job opportunity in Sao Paulo. So uh, I, I got to step up and, and be there for her now with, with her great opportunity. So we're making it work. And, and the nice thing is, is, is we have the teams on the ground, they're trained up and they're, so they're really just running the show, which is ultimately what we wanted to get to anyway. So it's a really good test to see how well they've, they can handle things on their own and they've done an amazing job. So I just basically come back, um, you know, every month or so, whenever there's a big delivery or or meetings or recycling runs to take care of, I come back for that, but really want to make, make this theirs. Did you move to Chile before you were fluent in Spanish? Uh, like, yeah. did you have like the idea for this whole thing and come down here before I'm no, guessing you're fluent now, but I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sufficient. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can get the meetings and do the presentations in my gringo Spanish and it's enough. Um, but yeah, when I came here, I, I didn't have much of any Spanish, you know, I, I think I had a 
class or two in high school and I did like flashcards to build a vocabulary, but that was, that was it. And, and for the record, we're talking about Chilean Spanish. Yeah, we're talking they, they about don't pronounce, They don't yeah. pronounce the S's. Yeah. What were you saying? My, what were you saying the difference? My example is, is everyone knows como estas in Chile. It's cotai, cotai. That's, that's the difference. So yeah, it oh, was a so... whole, it was like, Oh, I know Spanish. Yeah. I've been, you know, taking these online classes or whatever I could to, to build up. And then I sit into my, I go to my first Chilean house party and I'm like, what the fuck do people <laughs> say? They talk so, so fast. Oh my gosh. And it's all slang and it's, it's, it's really cool once you, you start to figure it out. Like the words they have are so clever. And really fun, uh, like weón and chela and carete and just so many fun things they, they use. So when you do get the hang of it, it's it's super fun, but but it takes a while. Yeah. So during that time, you learned Spanish. Were you taking classes when you started Braille yeah, as well? I, so uh, I had one year as an environmental consultant here oh, okay. um, before Braille started. And... Um, and I'll never forget day one, the, we had, uh, they had one of those like virtual desks where the other half of the desk was, uh, these officials in Paris for UNEP. And they were to check in on a report that Southern Cone Eco label report that, that I eventually got involved in. But this was just, my boss was like, just sit in on this meeting, like, so you can be a part of this. Cause I think I want you involved in this project. And it was just them like just reprimanding this 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 uh guy leading the study just saying like this report is terrible like it makes no sense like where is the structure like this is hor-. and then like right after it my boss just like the, the the call ended and my boss just turned to the guy that was responsible for the report and just went off on him in spanish and i couldn't <laughs> tell anything that was going on but i know it wasn't good and then right after he just turned to me and he goes okay this is your first project <laughs> oh shit so i had to take over the whole project just like that and yeah so so i had like an intern that would like sit in on meetings i would have like these like three hour government officials like in a meeting room like having a board uh like a massive table of of important people and i was sitting there with my intern trying to take notes and i'm just trying so freaking hard to keep up with what everyone's saying it was really intimidating man Dude, you just got thrown in the deep end. Yeah, man. Um, you're fearless, dude. <laughs> like, you have to. You have to be. I mean, has that always been uh, the case for you since you were a kid? Like, there's a lot of decisions that you're kind of just like, yeah, yeah, you know, I moved to Chile to start this project that had never been done before. There's never really anything like it that I've seen that's been done before. And you just, like, bought the ticket and made it happen. Uh not many people would do that. So like I guess. trying to dig into like what it is that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it really got kicked up a notch uh, when in college like in my twenties, you know, uh, I did lose a couple of close friends and some pretty tragic sudden accidents. And that definitely gives you perspective on how precious life is from one day to the next. And, um, and so I, and also I had a really great university program. I went to, I went to Northeastern in Boston, which is specialized. Their big thing is the co-op. So instead of a four year program where you have three month summers off, you do one 
regular year with a little summer. But after that, you do six months of school, six months of work, six months of school. Six, so you end up with a year and a half of work experience by the time you, you finish it. And each of them are just these six month blocks that you can just go and do whatever internship or whatever work experience relevant to your career. And um, obviously everyone was like trying to work at Bose and all these cool engineering companies in Boston. But I was just like, no, I want to go find like what I'm super passionate about. So I used those as my chance to just explore. So I did my first co-op for a, a hospital respirator company. And, 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 but most importantly in San Diego, it's my first time ever in California. And I was just in heaven surfing every day and just, just loving that. And then that company, uh, bought, acquired a little uh, biomedical company in Ireland and they were going to take the respirator I was working on and move the project there. My, I remember my boss was furious about it. And so for my next co-op, I just emailed the company in Ireland and said, I know that respirator in and out and I would love to come work for you guys for my next six months. So boom, next, next six months, Ireland. And, and I got super, and because they were all connected to the company in California that my boss and their team did a visit and they fell in love with surfing. So I was surfing like three days a week with my boss in Ireland. And it was, that was such an amazing experience. Ireland is just fantastic. The people, the environment, everything it's, it's was super fun. And then the third time, I uh, I had a friend that was really active in um, relief work in Africa, and she introduced me to a new program called Forge. And basically, they select uh, ten students from East, Central, and Western North America um, to basically become like they call them ambassadors. Um, but basically, uh, you you get fully trained up on like how to, you know create projects, how the, the conditions there, what can be done. And then you just boom, go on the ground and like create a project to empower these people and help them in whatever way you can. And so that was, that was the eye opener for me. Have you ever uh, read a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger? I know it. Okay. I know it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much related to what you're talking about. And it talks a lot about uh, the human psyche and how we need to operate in small groups. We need to feel like what we're doing matters and how a lot of times disasters bring out the best in people. Um, and it seems like what you were exposed to a yeah. lot early on is like, whoa, I can get on the ground and I can help. And this is bringing a ton of meaning to my life in a world where we very much tend to value individual gain over group well-being yeah group good right? yeah so i'm guessing that you got a bit of that like just hit of meaning at an early age yeah which i'm now deducing gave you the courage to buy that plane ticket and come down here yep that's that's it after and after that i was hooked i was i just got introduced to the world of sustainability and i was like that's it that's what i'm super passionate about i'm working in this you know, it's, that's it. And then I got introduced to a master's, new master's program in Sweden. So I did my master's in sustainability, strategic leadership towards sustainability master's in, in Sweden. And, uh, and then, yeah, that got me into the field of sustainability. And now you're living in Brazil. Now I'm in Brazil. So yeah. you're right at back at the bottom of the language totem pole. Gotta oh my Portuguese. gosh. Tell me about it. Right when I felt good about my Spanish, I moved to a country with a whole nother language. I mean, it's pretty similar, 
But yeah, it gets so old hearing it from my my in-laws and everybody and my wife's family. Like, why haven't you learned Portuguese yet? I'm like, do you realize I just I'm trying figured to save Spanish? the world here. Give me I a break. I just figured out Spanish. Come on. So yeah, we we call it Portanol is what I speak there. Portanol, which is Spanish and Portuguese right. together. Yeah. Well, we were talking the other night about how if you're if you constantly put yourself in this state of learning and like constantly sucking at shit and trying to get better at it, uh, that can you, you can use that mindset laterally in other aspects of your life. Like the worst thing that you can do is get too comfortable and think that you're too good at something. Yeah. That really slows down the learning process. No, it's like those videos of the, like the the people that just decide to, they want to get good at break dancing, and then they film them like day after day after day, and they just devote like every morning for like you know six months, and then suddenly like boom, the last video they're like this badass break dancer. It's like yeah, you got to challenge yourself, man. If you're really into it, like just get after it. How long do, would you say that it took you to learn Spanish? I mean. It, it's kind of hard to say like where, where it like it's uh, kind of a spectrum yeah like yeah yeah so I think you know after the first year it was it was okay but I think year two was really where it was like okay I can I can manage with this I mean I still stumble a lot and have my challenges with it like if I if I'm having a really technical meeting especially if it has to do with like business stuff like I still try to make sure we keep it to English as much as I can. But my strategy usually is, uh, I, I, we have our conversation, we have our meeting. And then afterwards I go, okay, entonces. And then I repeat everything back in my slow Spanish just to say, so you're going to do this. And then this is going to happen. This has happened, right? That's what we're And they're like, yes, we just <laughs> talked about for 10 minutes is probably what he's thinking. But for me, it's just like this super confirmation I need to be like, yes, okay, we're on the same page. We're Good. talking about the same yeah. kind of plastic here. Yeah. <laughs> you want yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah. that you get the right mold. Yeah. So, so it's a lot of games like that just to like figure out the balance of it all. Hell yeah, Ben. Well, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. This is, this is great opportunity. Thanks. What a week. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to play you out with a song by Jack Johnson called Breakdown. And be sure to get in touch with Ben on Instagram at Boreo. You can also get in touch with me on Instagram or on my website, kyle.surf. That's also where you can donate to this podcast if you feel so inspired. It's listeners like you who make this show possible. All right, get outside, get in the water, and... Bring your own mug next time you go get coffee because plastic pollution is one of the great issues of our time and it is solvable. So let's solve it together. See you soon. This old train breaks down Then I could take a walk around See what there is to see Time is just a melody With all the people in the street Walking fast as the feet can take them I just roll through town And though my window's got a view Well, the frame I'm looking through Seems to have no concern for now So for now
engine screams out loud Centipede gonna crawl westbound So I don't even make a sound Cause it's gonna sting me when I leave this town And all the people in the street that I never get to meet These tracks don't bend somehow And I got no time that I got to get to where I don't need to be Stop now. 